Alrighty, hello and welcome to Grow Series in MCAT Content Review Podcast. So in this episode, what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish the foundational concept six of psychology and sociology, part of the MCAT, and we're going to get into a lot of different things. So I'm going to talk about attention, you know, memory, decision making, intelligence, language, ton of stuff, um, finish with, you know, the physiology and theories of emotions and stress, and uh, it'll be a lot of content, um, usually always is, but you know, the best way to learn all this is repetition. I suggest listening to this podcast and uh, the other episodes a few more times, you know, reading books, using Anki, Quizlet, whatever your resources are, repetition is key. So psychology on the MCAT is probably one of the only subjects that has an incredibly linear uh, progression between time spent and the score you get. So basically, the more time you pump in, the better score you'll get. So just focus on that, all right? So as I mentioned before, I'm going to be reviewing topics, which means I won't go all over the nitty gritty, but I'm going to try to give you the bulk of the content. So we're going to start off with attention, all right? So attention is finite. It's limited. There's different intensities of uh, attention, and we'll get into each one. So the hierarchical model of attention goes from easiest to hardest. So there's a little model from, you know, top to bottom, easiest to hardest of, uh, of attention, all right? The easiest is what we call focused attention. So basically, you just respond to stimuli pretty easy. You know, a light flashes, you open your eyes. All right. Sustained attention is when you have the same response when you keep doing something. So if, uh, let's say, uh, someone tries to scare me, and I have the same response every time, it's because I'm, you know, attending to the topic at hand, which is the person scaring me. All right, selective attention, that's the ability to, you know, maintain your attention even with it when there's other stuff going on. So if you're focusing on the street while you're driving, even though there's a ton of distractions, other cars, you know, wildlife, lights, this and that, you're still driving, you're focusing on the road, that's selective attention. All right, so we just did focused attention, which is just responding. Sustained attention, which is when you're responding even if you're doing something repetitive. And then selective attention, which is when you respond, even if there's a ton of different stimuli and distractions, this and that. All right. Two more. There's the alternating attention. That's the ability to shift your focus of attention when you have different things going on. All right. So alternating attention is like when you are watching Netflix on one tab and then writing an essay on the other. And then there's divided attention. So a lot of people kind of confuse alternating attention and divided attention. Just make sure you know alternating is when you're switching from one to the other. Divided is when you have both of them, you know, combined. Divided attention is basically multitasking. So with divided attention, if we're going to continue with the Netflix example, you have Netflix taking half the screen and your essay on the other half. It's the highest level of attention, which means it takes a ton of energy and it means the split isn't really accurate. You won't really get that much done. You end up actually alternating attention more than you are multitasking. So basically, lesson here, just don't multitask, guys. Come on. So on a similar note, we'll talk about the cocktail party effect. That's basically when you can you know, recognize one voice in a crowd or when you recognize your name in a crowd. So you're able to focus your attention on a certain person, even if there's a ton of distractions around. And remember, if you're focusing your attention on one thing with a ton of distractions, what is that? Selective attention. All right. So with regards to that selective attention, there's a few theories. And um, just before I even get started, I'm just going to say tons of theories this episode, tons of names you have to remember. Just, again, repetition. Broadbent had the theory of early selection. He thought that all the info that comes, it goes through like a register, a sensory register. Then it goes through a sensory filter. The filter kind of rids the distractions from the important stuff. And then it goes through perceptual processes, which, you know, identify voices, they identify meanings. And then, uh, yeah, so a register takes everything. The filter takes the bulk BS out. And then the perceptual processes assess the meaning. This would be fine, but if there was a sensory filter before you could assess meaning, then how can you recognize your name if it was said across a room in a conversation you weren't paying attention to? There has to be some type of mix where you assess the meaning before you take the BS out, right? Because if theoretically someone had said my name in a different conversation, I still can, you know, recognize my name. And even though, according to Broadbent, it would be uh, filtered out. So Broadbent wasn't quite there. Dausch and Dausch 
they noticed a fatal flaw in broadband's theory, and they theorized that the sensory filter comes after the perceptual processes. Uh, in other words, when you assign a meaning to everything, you filter it out later on, you filter out what's useful, what's not. So the fatal flaw of this theory is that it seems like a waste of time and energy to analyze the meaning of everything and then start filtering it out after that. So uh, their theory was called Doubt and Doubt Late Selection Theory. All right, so early selection theory is when you filter the BS out and then you get the real information and understand the meaning of that. Late selection theory, Doubt and Doubt, they thought you understand everything, as in you recognize the meaning of everything, then you filter out what's useful and what's not. And that's fatal flaw was waste of time, waste of energy. All right, now Treisman, he saw both of these theories he understood the fatal flaw in each one and he made his own. So he said, well, maybe our sensory filter isn't a filter in that it completely ignores some things and it completely accepts other information. Maybe it just quiets down the irrelevant things. You know, it weakens it, but it doesn't eliminate input. So Trisman made the Trisman attenuation theory. So he thought there's an attenuator. Basically, it would weaken or dampen some things and then, um, you know, you can still pay attention to it. So for his theory, if I heard uh, my name in a separate conversation, you know, maybe 10 feet away, I wouldn't completely filter it out and I wouldn't recognize the meaning immediately. I would have that dampen, but then when I hear my name, I recognize it and I get the meaning from it. So Trisman was probably the closest one. All right, so this all leads to the mention of the spotlight model. That's where you take information from all five senses, but you're able to focus it on a small subset of all that influx of sensory information coming in. So your brain is kind of like a flashlight. You know, you can move the beam of light around to specific areas of a room and everything inside the beam is something you're focusing on. Meanwhile, everything outside the beam is what you're not consciously taking note of. That's the spotlight model. So the spotlight model basically says we get all this information from all our senses, but we can focus on a small subset of that. So let's say uh, we're thinking of how the chair feels on your body right now, the pressure it has on you. You're focusing on that touch sensation and you weren't maybe consciously thinking about it before, but now that we're talking about it, we shifted our attention spotlight to the pressure you're feeling uh, of the chair. So that's just an example of the spotlight model. You know, If you really recognize and feel every single sensation all the time, it'd be like a sensory overload. It'd be way too much. Alrighty, so taking away... Um, our spotlight on, you know, the spotlight model on attention, we're going to move to memory. So I'll start off with the information processing model. That basically says our brains are like computers. All right. You get a ton of input, you temporarily register it all. And then um, there's iconic memory, which is visual and you see for half a second. And you also temporarily store auditory memory for three to four seconds. And we call that echoic memory. So with the information processing model, Basically, you just got to remember two vocab words from this iconic memory, which is visual really quick, half a second, and then auditory data. That's three to four seconds. And that's also called echoic memory. All right. So we'll talk about working memory as well. Another vocab word I'm going to throw in here. That's uh, short term memory. So that's the memories you're working on right now. So that short term memory has a capacity of roughly seven. So working memory can hold seven plus or minus two pieces of information at one time. So that's actually why phone numbers start out at seven digits long. You can hold seven pieces of information at one time. Of course, that varies, you know, person to person, age, just genetics, all that stuff. And then, of course, complexity of information just depends. But seven plus or minus two is your magic number of short term. All right. With short term memory, there's also certain procedures you can do to remember stuff. Um, let's think about the visual spatial sketchpad. That's for visual and spatial information. Then there's the phonological loop. It's used for verbal memory and it's used all the time. So like, you remember when uh, someone tells you a series of numbers and you get, keep it running a loop in your head to remember? That's a phonological loop. So with short-term memories that require the use of you know visual and verbal at the same time, you use this thing called the central executive. So the central executive coordinates all the corresponding memories, puts it all through an episodic buffer, and that translates to long-term memory. So visual plus verbal requires central executive. Central executive corresponds to all your memories together, runs it through a buffer, the episodic buffer, that you know kind of organizes everything, and then you transport that straight to long-term memory. Now, there's a few interesting things that's explained 
in this short-term working memory thing. The first is the serial position effect. Now that's the combination of both primacy and recent effects. Basically says you remember the first part and the last part of a list. The central executive also corresponds to the dual coding hypothesis. That basically emphasizes that when you combine your senses to remember something, you remember it better. So if we're using, you know, for example, studying for the MCAT, you're listening to this podcast right now, and then you go home and you also read it in a book or you write it down, dual coding, you remember everything way better. So now to long-term memory, um, you have an unlimited capacity here. So technically there's nothing stopping you from memorizing this entire series, you know, word for word and just, you know, blurting it all on test day. But obviously don't do that. Long-term memory, it's split into two categories. Uh, declarative memory, which is also called explicit memory. And then non-declarative, which is called implicit memory. So we'll go into declarative and explicit first. So explicit memories are facts or events that you can just straight up describe. So these include semantic memory. That's like specific words or facts. And then episodic memory, which is full-fledged events. That should be pretty easy to remember, episodic, you know, an episode, a full full event. And then um, you have the explicit memories, the semantic. Semantic is just facts or words, stuff like that. So declarative combination of both semantic and episodic. And declarative can also be called explicit. Now, implicit or non-declarative, those are things that you don't really memorize. You can't really spit out, articulate, you know? So things like riding a bike or climbing a ladder, you technically can describe it, but there are procedural things that uh, kind of just something you do. So to go over long-term memory one more time, long-term is split into both declarative and non-declarative. Declarative is also called explicit and has to do with things you can describe. So in declarative memory, there's semantic memory, and then there is episodic. Semantic is specific words or specific facts. Episodic is like a full-fledged event. All right, now leaving that declarative side, we have the non-declarative memory. That's also known as implicit memory. There are things you maybe can't describe as well, like riding your bike. All right, so that's long-term memory. So now the shuttle from recognizing things and putting them in your memory, it's called encoding. So remember how we said the short-term memory had like a cap of around seven? If you want to remember more, you got to use some techniques. So there are five techniques you got to remember. First is rote rehearsal. That's basically just saying the same thing over and over, but isn't very effective. Second thing is chunking. It's like when we group things together into different categories. So if it's like something related to a specific event, we group all those memories specific to that event together. Third are mnemonic devices, imagery and acronym, stuff like that to remember. I love that. I use mnemonic devices all the time, especially for the MCAT. It's just, uh, and you know, the, the weirder it is, the better. It just helps out. Fourth is self-referencing. It's thinking about new information and how it relates to you personally. Um, that's also a great way, you know, if you correlate it to your experiences, super effective. All right. And lastly, is spacing, basically spreading, studying out into shorter periods. You know, eh, I don't know. It doesn't really correlate with the others, but whatever. So the five we have is rote rehearsal, chunking mnemonic devices, self-referencing, and spacing. And that's uh, how you encode your memory. So another interesting memory quip is state-dependent memory. Your state at that moment will make you remember something. So if you get super drunk every time you study for the MCAT, you'll remember the MCAT when you're drunk. Also, don't do that. (laughs) All right, so now we'll talk about memory reconstruction. On a more serious note, your brain is pretty crazy. You know, it can completely distort memories if needed. And that actually happens a lot with those who are trying to mask a traumatic memory. Um, It's just a way to handle it. So every time we retrieve a memory, we change it in small ways, just depending on who we are. So like our life, our goals, our environment, all that. So sometimes we retrieve a memory and it's based on a schema. So schema is a mental blueprint and it contains common aspects of the world, not the real story. So similar to that is what happens when you have a gap in your memory. Our brain might fill that gap with a memory that seems logical or something that, you know, you might like, desirable, something like that. For example, if someone tells a story about a fish that they caught, it could, you know, seem bigger every single time they retell the story. When retrieving memories, there is the source monitoring error. This says that you sometimes forget where you got your information, but the actual memory is intact. So, for example, let's say my friends told me about this huge house fire they saw, you know, years down the line. 
I might say that I witnessed that house fire if I was a victim of the source monitoring error. Basically, source monitoring error, big way to say, sometimes you confuse who told you what. And I kind of touched on it before, but emotions. So emotional memories can be either positive or negative. Really vivid memories are called flashable memories, and they can seem real as life. And despite the accuracy of flashable memories, they can actually still be altered or reconstructed. So even if someone says that, you know, they remember something extremely vividly and this and that happened, it might not be 100% accurate. So your brain is really manipulative. It can change stuff. You know, it's not a computer. It can alter your memories in different ways. It's an accumulation of emotions, facts, events, your life, your goals. Memory is not a discrete thing. It's pretty fluid. So memory is related to learning and the actual anatomy of how you learn is pretty cool. The brain doesn't need to grow new cells to store memories. Remember I said before, long-term memory is unlimited. So what they do is they just make the connections between neurons stronger. So that increase in strength of the connection is called long-term potentiation. Increased stimulation leads to increased strength of synapse and thus learning. So, you know, we talk about, let's say we're learning about long-term potentiation. You constantly run that through your head you know, long-term potentiation isn't growing new cells. It's making the connections stronger. You run that through your head over and over, and then it leads to learning. All right, so we talked about learning. Now let's talk about forgetting things. So when it comes to forgetting things, we call it decay. So with decay, connections become weaker. So the first person to really explore decay was Ebbinghaus. And uh, he noticed that if he just completely stopped looking at something, he'd forget it fast. But if he remembered it a bit after the initial stage and he went back to it, then it actually was, uh, it kind of stayed level. So relearning can take less time and it keeps it stored in your memory. But sometimes interference can mess with your memory. So let's say if you're learning something new, it can screw up your old information. We call that retroactive interference. You're retroactively changing an old memory. But sometimes interference messes with your memory. Learning new information can screw up the memory of your old information. And uh, that is called retroactive interference. So if I got a new phone number and kept typing it out, it was constantly in my mind, I would slowly forget the old number. And that's the old information I'm forgetting. We're retroactively interfering that information with the new phone number. And then there's proactive interference. That's when something you learned in the past messes with your learning in the future. So like, let's say I have a new password I keep typing my old one and I'm forgetting my new one, that is the old inter- information proactively interfering with the new information. So that is proactive interference. So this retroactive, proactive stuff, it reminds me of another important couple of terms you got to know. Um, that's retrograde amnesia and anterograde amnesia. So retrograde amnesia is when you can't remember old information. Should be pretty easy. You know, think of retro being old. Anterograde amnesia is when you can't make new memories. So retrograde is when you can't remember old information. Anterograde is when you can't make new memories. So when you age, you start forgetting things. What stays constant, though, are those implicit memories. So remember implicit was like a procedure, like riding a bike or writing your name. That stays uh, constant. And then recognition also stays constant. But some things get better, some things get worse with age. So, you know, the wise old man stereotype that started because as you get older, your memory of facts and, you know, words, stuff like that. Remember, that's semantic memory that improves. So along with that, you can combine emotional reasoning, you know, your emotional reasoning, your knowledge, your experience that all gets better. So you kind of have a good grasp on everything. You know, you're emotionally knowledgeable you're semantically uh, knowledgeable and you can combine that, you become that, you know, wise person. You become more mature. So what declines as you age is first, your recall of certain events. Second, uh, your ability to multitask, you know, have that divided attention. And lastly, it's your ability to create memories in the future. Remember, that's anterograde. And uh, specifically in the future with activities or episodes, episodic memory, those things. So I just mentioned a bit ago, remember I said the things that stay stable are your implicit memories and your recognition. That's not always true. You know, there's issues like Alzheimer's and Korsakoff's and they're able to uh, develop dementia. So the definition of dementia is just forgetting enough that it actually starts messing with your life. 
and it's from damage to brain tissue. So it comes from the Latin word dement, which means out of your mind. So dementia, it's memories are getting out of your mind. The most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's. In this disease, you know, neurons are dying off over time and it gets worse. You go from, you know, memory and attention loss, then you start getting language difficulties. You start losing, you know, bodily functions and uh, forgetting words. Now, the exact cause of Alzheimer's is pretty unknown, but we do know that it uh, has a buildup of amyloid plaques in their brain. We don't know if the amyloid plaques is, you know, an association of what causes it or if it's a byproduct of a certain thing that causes uh, Alzheimer's. There's still a lot of research that has to be done on it, and um, it's huge because if you've ever seen anyone that has Alzheimer's, it's heartbreaking. Um, Korsakoff, on the other hand, it has a known cause, and that's a lack of vitamin B1. Vitamin B1 is also known as thiamine. So thiamine, it's used to convert carbs to glucose, and that gives you energy for neurons. So before Korsakoff's, you don't go instantly to Korsakoff's. Um, you d- develop Wernicke's encephalopathy. And at the Wernicke stage, you can prevent further damage, but if you leave it untreated, you get Korsakoff's. You know, treatment is basically just get vitamin B1, thiamine in your system. And the symptoms of Wernicke's are pretty obvious. Poor balance, confusion, memory loss. So if you experience that, get some vitamin B1 in you, you'll you'll be A-OK. All right, so let's get a bit deeper in the theories and the people behind some aspects of cognitive development. So Piaget made uh, stages of cognitive development And these are something you just have to memorize the age ranges of. Piaget made four stages. There's one called the sensory motor and three that are variations of the word operational. So when you're thinking of Piaget, think sensory motor plus three operationals, all right? So first is sensory motor. Let's get the odd man out first, right? So that's from ages zero to two. So here you learn about smell, hearing, touch, all that stuff. And you also learn that objects can still exist even when you don't see them. So let's say, you know, you play peekaboo with your kid and uh, by the time they hit two, they know you're still, you know, a human. You still exist behind the uh, hands you're using to cover your face. So sensory motor, basically, it's from zero to two years old. It's the first stage. Babies learn object permanence here. Next up are the operationals. So we'll start off with the pre-operational. That makes sense, right? Pre is first. So pre-operational is two years old to seven years old. This stage is when children flourish with creativity. You know, they start playing pretend, but they can also become real bullies. These kids are straight up egocentric sometimes at this age range. And that's because they haven't really developed empathy yet. So if you've ever hung out with some seven-year-olds, you already know this is true, man. They straight roast you if they can. So pre-operational, two to seven years old. Second stage, and kids are egocentric, but also really creative. All right, now we get to concrete operational. That is from 7 to 11 years old. Here you learn the idea of conservation. So that's something that MCAT folks love to talk about, and there's a great video on YouTube where they interview a little guy about conservation. All right, so conservation is basically like if I, uh, if I put 10 ounces of water into a tall glass and then pour those 10 ounces into a wide, short glass recognizing that it's still the same amount of water, even though the tall glass looks like more. So being able to tell the amount of something stays the same, even with changes to the outside appearance, is something you learn in the concrete operational stage. And then in this stage, 7 to 11 years old, kids are also pretty kind. They get a little better with it. They learn empathy. So just to summarize, concrete operational, 7 to 11 years old, third stage, Kids learn empathy and conservation. Alrighty, and the last stage in Piaget's uh, whole stages of cognitive development is formal operational. That is 12 years and older. So here you learn abstract consequences and more sophisticated reasoning. Think of formal operational as the age where you can become more formal and more sophisticated. Yeah, so that wraps up Piaget and his theories of cognitive development. Alrighty, so let's get into schemas. So you'll see this word a decent amount in psychology. I did mention it a bit earlier as well. A schema is a mental model for something. So think of it as a room in your head that certain ideas that are similar to each other like to hang around in. Piaget said that we can change the schemas by two ways. Assimilation, which is when we throw an idea into the schema room, and accommodation, which is when we change that schema room so we can let a certain set of ideas chill with the others in that schema. So assimilation, throw an idea in that room. Accommodation is when we change the room. And remember, I said the room is where 
those certain ideas like to hang out around in. All right, now we'll talk about uh, decision-making. So use some procedures to make a decision, and one is heuristics. Heuristics is a fancy way of saying mental shortcuts, all right? So what defines your heuristic shortcuts? So availability and representativeness. Availability is being able to use examples that come to mind. You know, we could even say examples that are available to you, right? Availability makes sense. Uh, Representativeness is the mental shortcut where people look for the most representative answer. So, you know, you're thinking of a prototype of an idea. You kind of want to fit something in that idea. That's representativeness. So availability is using actual memories in your mind. Representativeness is when you are using an idea of what you want to see. So something to understand is semantic networks. Basically understand concepts are connected. And when you can pull one concept, you often pull related concepts too. That kind of pulling of related concept is called spreading activation. It kind of makes sense, right? Spreading, you know, different concepts are all spread out. They're all activated. Spreading activation. And that also explains false memories and remembering information wrong. You know, you can be pulling one concept and you might just pull something that's really similar. All right, so now that we're done with that, we're going to jump into intelligence. You know, this episode seems like we're kind of jumping around, but no worries. Just uh, keep, you know, pumping it all in. So we'll go to intelligence. Here there's a theory that um, there's multiple different theories, all right? There's one theory that there's just one general intelligence that encapsulates all tasks. So you're just either smart at life or you're not. And then there's a concept of two major categories, fluid and crystallized intelligence. Fluid is like the ability to think fast. Crystallized is like raw facts, kind of like street smart and book smart. And then there's one of three intelligences, analytical, creative, and practical. So those are three different theories. I'm also going to jump into some more theories, but in general, you'll see different concepts fit into those different theories or ranges. So intelligence is a super controversial topic. And there's one subsect of that chaos you've probably heard of. That's nature versus nurture. So that asks how much of who you are is due to your genes and how much is due to the environment and the experiences. So studies found that a combination of similar genetics and similar environment led to the best correlation in, you know, your personality but studies outside of that couldn't completely say if it was one or over the other. So we know that similar environment and similar genetics will lead to a similar person, but there isn't conclusive evidence that says genetics is way more influential than environment or vice versa. Now, I mentioned that general intelligence before. Remember, whether you're just smart or you're not. So that theory is spearheaded by Spearman. So remember, the most basic intelligence idea um, is general intelligence. Basically, he says a single factor is responsible for all your cognitive tasks. So we mentioned general intelligence spearheaded by Spearman. And then that's like the most basic kind of form of intelligence, basically saying everything depends on one single factor. We talked about fluid and crystallized intelligence, which is, uh, you know, one that's kind of street smart fluid. And then the other that's like raw facts, kind of like book smart. And then uh, we talked about the three intelligences, those being analytical, creative and practical I'm going to throw another one at you. That's Gardner's idea of eight intelligences. And uh, those intelligences include logical, visual, musical, intrapersonal, interpersonal, kinesthetic, naturalistic, and linguistic. So, you know, all different types of areas. It's a little bit more, you know, outreaching. Way better than Spearman, in my opinion, who said they're just, you're either straight up intelligent or not. Completely disagree with that. Um, I think Gardner's idea of eight intelligences is a little bit more closer to reality. All right, so now we're going to jump into language. Learning a language as a child is not like a gradually increasing skill. It's actually known to be a U-shaped curve, so that's pretty cool. So when children first start to learn how to talk, they're just copying what other people say. So if they heard, you know, I ran, they say, oh, I ran. They heard she went, they'll say she went, they came, they came. But then when they start learning on their own, they have to break that old habits and they start learning from the ground up, the foundations. So then they start using their mind. They're not just memorizing something. They instead say, will say, you know, I runned. Or instead of like he ate, they'll say he eated, stuff like that. So they build from the ground up. They begin to learn where the rules apply and where they don't. And then they start to learn, you know, to form the past tense once again. They settle in into the language. So they get better from the ground up. 
so that results in a u-shaped curve right so at the start you're, you're good you're you're learning you say correct terms correct grammar then you break all that down and you get to the bottom of the u where you realize that you just start from the foundation and then build up and then you build up into the top of the u so language mastery starts high drops for a bit and then improves again so there's a tons so there's tons of different theories on language. Remember Piaget, the guy who had the sensory motor in the operational phase for cognitive development? So my guy Piaget thought when you think a certain way, you tend to develop a language to describe those thoughts. Another guy, his name is Vygotsky, he thought language and thought were completely independent. And when you start growing up, you can fuse them together. So there's two important theories here to focus on. In summary, Piaget says, think first, talk about those thoughts. Vygotsky said, think and talk then combine them. So just think kind of Vygotsky, fancier name for a fancier theory. All right, so continuing with Vygotsky and his language development theory, Vygotsky had an interactionist approach, all right? He intertwined biological and social factors, thought they worked together to make people learn languages. So it's that mix of environmental and innate desire to communicate that gets kids learning languages. You want to learn, and then you're kind of... uh, As a human, you're made to learn. Your social environment, everyone's learning to talk, so you want to learn to talk too. Basically, Vygotsky was all about that peer pressure, you know? So there's two more theories on languages. A big one is the nativist. This is by my guy, Noam Chomsky. He thought language was native. It's something innate, and, uh, you know, we can all learn languages, which is why every language has the same basic elements, nouns, verbs, etc. So he thought... You know, language was just as much a part of being human as walking. So Noam Chomsky, remember that that guy thought language was innate. All right, so we'll move on to Skinner. He, on the other hand, thought something completely different. He thought language was a behaviorist thing. So Skinner's learning theory was all about how language is a form of behavior and we learn through operant conditioning. So basically he said, uh, when your mom is happy after, you know, you say the word mama, you start to say it more. It's all like a reward and a consequence type of thing. That's Skinner's approach. I mentioned discrete questions before. You know, those are questions that just ask about a specific thing. So you kind of have to know a lot of facts. One that I recognize that I remember is on the Sapir-Whorfian hypothesis. That's the idea that speakers of different languages can utilize different ways of thinking to shape their worldview to make that, you know, normal English. Basically, we start to understand the world through our own language and the way we talk affects our culture and affects us, affects how we think of the world. So someone speaking English thinks of the world different than someone speaking Cantonese, you know? That's what Sapir and Warfian thought. And uh, lastly, we'll get a bit into the anatomy of language. So for about 90% of people, language is in the left hemisphere. And there's two main areas to focus on with language. First is Broca's area. And Broca is used to make speech. And that guy is in the frontal lobe. The second is Wernicke's area. That's where you understand language. And it's located in the temporal lobe. So you also have to recognize a lobe. Something you got to know. Basic psychology. Uh, Frontal, parietal, occipital, temporal. That's from front to back. And then temporal is on the bottom. So Broca's area like I mentioned, frontal lobe, Wernicke's area, temporal lobe. Broca's area is used to make speech. Wernicke's area is used to understand speech. So what helps me with differentiating these is the Spanish word for mouth, which is boca. So you make speech with your mouth, which like I said, is your boca. And that sounds really similar to Broca. So Broca's area is used to make speech. So if you screw up both your Broca's area and your Wernicke's area, you get global aphasia. So Broca's area and Wernicke's area are used to make speech and uh, they're used to understand language, all right? So they're used respectively one to one to make speech, Broca's area, and one to understand speech, Wernicke's area. But of course, they have to be connected. Um, to speak, you need to understand language, right? So you need both of them to combine. And the thing that combines them is a mouthful. It's arcuate fasciculus. All right, so the arcuate fasciculus is what combines your Broca's area with your Wernicke's area. And what's cool is that even in people who are deaf, they still have that bundle of nerves, the arcuate fasciculus, because um, they need a sense of communication, and sign language is just as much of a language 
as English, Cantonese, whatever. So when that bundle of nerves, the arcuate fasciculus, is messed up, we get conduction aphasia. Think of it as like conducting electricity, you know, from one to the other, you can't conduct. Um, Basically saying the ability to go between listening and speaking gets messed up. All right, so I'm just going to show how isolated each part of your brain is, but also how connected they are. So with vision, it goes to opposite hemispheres of your brain. So if I see something on my left side, my right hemisphere gets that information. So if you get your corpus callosum messed up, it messes up the communication. Corpus callosum, it's in the middle of your brain and it links the two hemispheres. So it's kind of like the bridge between left and right. If the corpus callosum is messed up, when you see an object on your left, you can't name it. It needs to be moved to your right visual field before you can name it. Let's say an object is on your left visual field. And let's say your corpus callosum is messed up as well. So you see it with your, you know, you see it on the left. It crosses, goes to the right hemisphere. Your right hemisphere interprets that visual data. But if your corpus callosum is messed up, it can't cross to the left hemisphere. And remember, we said the left hemisphere of your brain has to do with language. So if it's on your left visual field, that means you can't even recognize it. You can't name it. But if we just move it over to the right, the right visual field, it hits the left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere, like we said, has to do with language. So you can only name something if it's on your right visual field, if your corpus callosum is messed up. So, you know, Everything's a little isolated, but everything's also really combined. So that's pretty cool. You know, the brain is so unique. There's so many different things that are all connected, intertwined. It's pretty crazy. All right, so that concludes language. Let's make a big shift to emotions, and we'll specifically go with the limbic system. All righty. So the limbic system is responsible for memories in general, but especially the ones that are tied to emotions. There's four parts of the limbic system, and the best way to remember them is the iconic mnemonic, that rhymed, the iconic mnemonic, hippo wearing a hat. So hippocampus, hypothalamus, amygdala, and thalamus. So the hat part is H-A-T, hypothalamus, amygdala, thalamus, hippo part, pretty obvious, hippocampus. All right, so we're going to break this down in the order of the mnemonic. So the hippo part of the hippo wearing a hat is the hippocampus, like I said. The hippocampus is super important for making new memories. It converts your short-term memories to your long-term memories. So how I remember the hippocampus um, is a phrase, don't forget to bring your hippo to campus. So we're done with the hippo part of the hippo wearing a hat. Then there's a the hypothalamus. And that's a tiny thing under the thalamus. It regulates the autonomic nervous system. And that's a whole, you know, fight or flight versus rest and digest thing. It also controls the endocrine system, meaning it controls your hormones. So hypothalamus, hormones, and autonomic nervous system. The next part of the limbic system is the amygdala. And that's important because it's the place where you get some super strong emotions like anger and fear. So if your amygdala gets destroyed, you have a mellow mood, but there's also some super weird effects like you start putting things in your mouth, you have a super strong sexual urge, and then you have uh, changes in your personality and behavior. You're way more rude and offensive. So it's kind of crazy how changing something like the amygdala or something small like that in your brain can completely change your personality. All right, last in the hippo wearing a hat mnemonic is the thalamus. That's like the sensory relay station. So this is the biggest one because everything you hear, you taste, you feel goes through the thalamus. And then it puts it in the right place. So it's related to emotions because you need your senses to feel emotion. So an important note is that smell is the only one that doesn't hit the thalamus. All right. So all your other senses do hit the thalamus. Then they get organized to their perspective, you know, place. But smell, it actually goes way closer to the amygdala. And there's an evolutionary reason for that. So remember with the amygdala, I said it uh, creates emotions like anger and fear. So those are really basic emotions that many animals have. And smell is the original sense in mammals. So smell hits closer to the animalistic side of humans, you know, closer to the amygdala, the basic emotions. And the remnants of the older mammalian forebrain is shown by the fact that smell doesn't go through the thalamus. So, you know, more complex emotions like guilt and remorse, those are all, you know, the prefrontal cortex and other parts of the brain. The amygdala is just very basic emotions. So it's kind of cool to see how the brain has evolved just as much as the rest of, you know, the body. So we talked about the mind's left and right sides. Well, emotions are similar. So positive emotions fire on the left side, negative emotions fire on the right side. 
And I mentioned the hypothalamus earlier and talked about the fight or flight or the rest and digest. You need to know a bit more about the autonomic nervous system that basically it has two branches, all right? So there's one that's sympathetic, that's the fight or flight. And then the second branch is parasympathetic, that's the rest and digest. So think of parasympathetic as like the feeling when you're almost paralyzed on the couch after Thanksgiving, you know, you take a nap, all that stuff. Paralyzed, parasympathetic, rest and digest. All right. So the characteristics of these should be stuff you're used to, and it's kind of common sense in most occasions. So the sympathetic, the fight or flight, you know, your pupils dilate, your salivation gets lower, your heart rate gets higher, your digestion gets lower. So let's say you're running away from a bear. You know, you don't want to digest your uh, meal that you just ate. You'd rather be increasing your heart rate, increasing your lung capacity and running, you know? Parasympathetic, it's the opposite. People constrict, digestion increases, and your heart rate slows down. So now we'll get away from the physiology. We'll get into the universal emotions and the theories of emotion. So Darwin, he thought emotion was just innate. It's just something that allows for better survival. And then other psychologists started getting into it. Uh, Paul Ekman, he went into the nitty gritty. He found six universal emotions identified by everyone around the world. And they're the first six letters on the second row of your keyboard. So if you see that, it's A-S-D-F-G-H. All right, so A is for anger. S is for surprise. D is for disgust. F is for fear. G is for gloom. And H is for happiness. So on the MCAT, if you have to worry about those six universal emotions by Paul Ekman, look at the second row of your keyboard, all right? All right, so getting away from Ekman and Darwin, we'll go into four huge theories of emotion and those theories are the James Lang theory, the Cannon Bard theory, the Schachter Singer theory, and the Lazarus theory. So these are huge. Remember these, study these, and uh, we'll get right into it. So there's four theories here, like I mentioned. Just to simplify it a bit more, I'm going to split them into two different categories. Two of these theories have two factors, and two of these theories have three factors. So we'll separate it like that. All right, so the first two-factor theory is the James Lang theory. Uh, this theory says that physiological arousal leads to emotion. So we got two factors here. Well, number one, physiological arousal, and then number two is emotion. Um, and so if we assess emotion with James Lang, then, for example, when your heart rate goes up, then you get mad. So you cry, then you get sad. So, you know, it doesn't really make sense in most scenarios. The physiological arousal leading to the emotion. Cannon Bard had the other two-factor theory. Um, here, Bard knew that, you know, a ton of emotions have the same physiological response. Uh, you know, sometimes you cry because you're happy or because you're sad. So crying leading to being sad didn't really make sense. So he disagreed with James Lang. Cannon Bard thought that both physiological arousal and emotion happened at the same time. So he thought, you know, you'll cry and uh, you'll get sad. It happens at the exact same time. So kind of getting there a little bit better than James Lang, in my opinion. But those are the two two-factor theories. So here in both scenarios, in James Lang and in Cannon Bard, they both only include physiological arousal and emotion. So you can consider them kind of like the simpler ones. So now we'll get into the three-factor theories. These are Schachter Singer and Lazarus. So both have the two factors of, you know, the physiological arousal and the emotion that James Lang and Cannon Bard had, but they also add another factor and that's cognition. So thinking about it, basically consciously thinking about it. So Schachter Singer thought James Lang, you know, he got it close when he thought physical changes led to emotion, but they thought it couldn't just be physical changes, right? It couldn't just be that physiological arousal. Schachter and Singer knew that, you know, crying doesn't make you sad. It's the thought of that situation that was also important. So to simplify that, Schachter Singer thought it was both physiological arousal and how you think about it that works at the same time, and that's what makes you sad in that scenario. Lazarus, he thought that emotion depends on the situation. So you first, you know, you label the situation, you assess the situation cognitively, then you get that emotional reaction and the physiological reaction. So let's take the crying example that we've kind of used so far. Lazarus would think that first you think about being sad, then, you know, you label the situation as it something, you know, the event being sad, then your sadness emotion comes out and the physical tears start coming out. So in summary, we have two two-factor theories that ignore cognition and two three-factor theories that take cognition into account. 
So James Lang thought that physiological changes lead to emotion. They thought that crying made you sad, basically. Canon Bard thought that those physiological changes happen at the same time as emotion. So you cry because you're sad, and you're sad because you're crying. Schachter Singer thought it was both those changes, those physical changes, and your cognition that led to emotion. So crying and thinking about your sick dog would lead you to being sad. And lastly, Lazarus thought that cognition led to emotion and physiological changes. So he hypothesized that thinking about your sick dog both makes you cry and makes you sad. So four different theories, you know, different ways of thinking about it. That's something that you really kind of have to go through with repetition and really understand. They kind of get confusing. You know, sometimes uh, you can mix one up with the other. You know, Cannon Bard and James Lang, which one says that uh, physical changes happen first? Which one says that it happens at the same time as emotion? Something you just got to study. All right. So the last emotional thing we'll talk about is the yerkes dodson law. This basically says that you need a perfect level of emotional stimulation to do the best at something. So let's take the MCAT, for example, right? I mean, pretty topical. So if you're too chill, you know, you don't really care about it. You'll miss some questions on the actual exam. But if you're totally freaking out and you're thinking about how much it's like a big deal and it depends like your whole future, this and that, you'll also do bad. So you want to be in the in-between where you realize it's an important exam, but you're also relaxed. The Yerkes Dodson law agrees with that. It says that a moderate level of emotional arousal is the best. So when you're in the in-between, you know, you're kind of chill, but you realize it's important. That's like the best area to be in. All right, now we'll talk about stress. So stress is all in the head. You don't get stressed out from the MCAT. You get stressed out thinking about the MCAT, right? It's not the actual object itself that's stressing you out. So there's the appraisal theory of stress. This basically says that there's a primary appraisal and secondary appraisal. So primary appraisal is when you think about how big of an issue the subject at hand is. If your reaction is positive or neutral, you don't go any further. But if it's a bad reaction, then you go on to secondary appraisal. So primary appraisal is kind of like the gate. So if you're, you know, if you, if you have a bad stress, you, gate opens. If you have a good or neutral stress, you go away. Secondary appraisal is seeing how you can handle that situation. So, all right, you're stressed. It's a bad stress. Secondary appraisal is like, oh, crap. Let's see how capable I am and how I can plan for that situation. All right, now, you know, what gets you stressed? As a pre-med student, you probably get stressed from a lot of different things. Well, there's four major categories of stressors. So there's significant life changes. So something like the death of a loved one, that's pretty huge, right? Another thing is like a catastrophic event. So let's say a hurricane, that can get you pretty stressed out. But then there's stuff like daily hassles, like maybe forgetting a wallet. And then there's ambient stressors, like if there's a constant annoying buzzing noise. And so those are the four major categories of stressors. So you have big life changes, you know, someone in your family died, a catastrophic event, you know, a hurricane or tornado came through, daily hassles, you know, forgetting the your wallet or your keys, and then ambient stressors, which are like an annoying an annoying noise, something like that. So even though it varies from something huge like a hurricane to something pretty minor like a buzzing noise, responding to these issues uses pretty similar brain anatomy. So the main physiological aspect you need to know for stress is the reticular activating system. That has to do with arousal and alertness. So we kind of talked about arousal and alertness with the um, with dreaming and with sleeping. Now, um, the reticular activating system, that has to do with stress. So how I remember the function is because of the word reticular. You know, it kind of sounds like retina. And if I think retina, you know, I think looking around, being aware, being alert of my surroundings. So reticular activating system is used to control arousal and alertness. Reticular, retina, kind of gets you there. All right, so stressors, they trigger the fight or flight system. So it increases your heart rate, turns off digestion, and all that, you know, fight or flight stuff. But long-term, stress is super bad for you. You've probably heard that a thousand times. First off, stress causes inflammation, specifically autoimmune inflammation, uh, when your own immune system attacks itself. So stress also increases blood pressure, and constant long-term increases in blood pressure can give you coronary artery disease, and that puts you at risk for a heart attack. I mentioned before, stressors trigger the fight-or-flight system, so that means that stressors also release cortisol and glucagon because, you know, if you're fighting or running away from something, you need energy. And glucagon is that storage version of glucose. You probably remember that from biochem. But consistent long-term spikes in glucose, that can be a factor and it can lead to diabetes too. So just like if someone eats a ton of chocolate all the time, they have a spike in glucose. 
Well, if you're stressing all the time, that glucagon comes out and it changes to glucose, you're having a, a spike in glucose too. So stress can actually lead to diabetes. Also, for women who stress a lot, um, there's a risk that they can't have kids. So the act of reproduction for women takes a ton of energy. And just like how your body shuts down digestion in the fight or flight mode, it can also shut down reproduction, leading to permanent results. So uh, that was pretty intense. It's kind of funny how learning about how bad stress is can stress you out, but I'm pretty stressed right now. (laughs) So moving on. So long-term stress can also lead to learned helplessness. So I don't know if you remember that term from before, but basically um, it says after you consistently get control stripped away from you, you just go screw it and realize you don't have control. So uh, yeah, to end this podcast on a positive note, some great ways to cope with stress is to perceive control. So if you think that you have control, you're usually able to take some control back. And then if you're optimistic, you can really manage stress. And if you get some support from other people, you can also realize maybe you're not alone, you know, when you're stressing out. So exercising, meditation, faith, understanding the big picture of life. Those are other ways to cope with stress. And uh, yeah, so don't get too stressed out for the AMCAC. Come on, guys. All right. So that concludes foundational concept six. That's the first foundational concept for psychology and sociology. And I hope this is helping, though, again, the MCAT in general, it's all about how much time you put in. So if you want great results, keep pumping that time in. It gets tough to remember the names and the theories, like, you know, how Chomsky created the nativist perspective for language development. Also remembering that maybe, you know, Broadbent made the early selection theory for selective attention. They kind of get confusing. So first run through probably is a bunch of different names, confuses you. So just run through these ideas again on paper. Come back, listen to the podcast again. Remember, if you use multiple senses when you study, it makes it more efficient. Remember that dual coding hypothesis? So you probably didn't remember that on your first listen, but if it's your second listen, you probably did, right? So as long as you pour the time in and the effort in and you use those different ways of studying, it'll all come together. You'll do great. Trust me. So anyway, see you guys on the next episode and uh, we'll start with foundational concept seven there. Have a good one.